Morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah Noom. I'm on staff here at Forefront. Um, any pronoun is okay with me. And before I get into the sermon, I just want to do a quick elaboration on the mental health first aid training thing. Um, it's put together by someone in our congregation, and I think mental health is something that obviously a lot of us either personally deal with or encounter, whether on the subway, on the sidewalk, someone seems to be exhibiting symptoms, and you're not sure what to do. And sometimes the instinct is to call the cops or just to run away. And also it comes up in our congregation, in our small groups, when people are sharing things, you're like, do you need a therapist? Do you need something? And so, um, obviously, we don't have all time to get clinical degrees in social work and psychology. So, this actually is an amazing opportunity to get some training. And I encourage you, if you're lead in any capacity in this for, in this church, whether you're on the prayer team, whether you're a small group leader, to go some to some of this because I think it's an important part of a kind of spiritual and leadership toolkit. So, um, the main reason why I'm thinking I'm standing before you today, um, preaching uh, on staff and what have you, is actually because my parents are pastors and church planters, and today is kind of a special day because it's the first time my parents are collectively here at this church to hear me preach. So, could you stand, mom and dad, uh, just so, uh, stand, stand so I can see you. Okay, thank you. Um, and usually when I go back to Malaysia, it's my dad who's preaching, and then he has us four kids stand up and parade us around for everyone. So I'm happy to embarrass you this time, and, um, and I'll also honor you to recognize the, the legacy you have on my life. So thank you for being here. Uh, we're in an epiphany series, and this is a series on becoming. Um, essentially, the kind of, and the, particularly we're focused on the kind of things we need to quit in order to transform and become more Christ-like. So today I want to focus on the theme of quitting perfectionism. Where did I put my glasses? Here we go. Um, and it's a theme, actually, we planned these series themes about a year in advance. So this is a theme that I sort of was given. And I was thinking about it. And I was thinking about how perfectionism is a kind of a tricky thing to deal with because, you know, we live in a capital society where we're perfection in work and work ethic and public image. It's something that obviously is very much prized. But it's also tricky as Christians because Jesus, in the Bible, I think it seems calls us to be perfect. So Matthew 5.48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now those of you who grew up in the conservative church like I did, um, perhaps heard verses like this, including others, used to justify a kind of perfectionism, sort of works-based righteousness, to use more reform language. Um, you know, you have to be perfect and th make sure you think the right thoughts and make sure you're doing the right things and avoiding the bad thoughts and avoiding the bad things so you stay in God's favor, so you don't go to hell, you go to heaven with God. And I don't have time in the sermon to kind of do a deep dive into our position in heaven and hell. But I will say briefly that the early followers of Jesus did not have our modern concepts of heaven and hell. Um, that's something that really comes from medieval authors like Dante. And they, in fact, uh, sort of believed, and you see a lot of evidence, of evidence of this throughout the Bible, that the earth at the end of days would transform to become like heaven. So here's an excerpt from N.T. Wright, an early church historian. The point was not for us to, quote, go to heaven, but for the life of heaven to arrive on earth. Jesus taught his followers to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as is in heaven. So as a church, how we interpret this in our own particular way, uh, we interpret it to mean that following Jesus and becoming Christian means committing to do this work of bringing heaven onto earth, of transforming this earth, this land, this nature, our relationships to be um, relationships of peace and justice and equity and inclusion. And that is for us when we say the gospel, when we say the good news, which is the literal translation of the gospel, that's what we mean. 
Um, it does not mean for us evangelizing so that people can believe the right thing, so they can avoid hell and go to heaven. So in this sermon, or just in general, when we talk about social justice on stage or political topics, we are not deviating from our interpretation of the gospel. In fact, we are getting to what we believe is the heart of it. Um, you know, obviously through our limited human interpretations. And I don't have time to dive into biblical passages to support why we're in. I'm just going to take that as a premise. And if you're concerned about this premise, you can listen to previous sermons, and then we can chat later on. Um, but this sermon is going to take that as a premise, and we're going to do a lot more application and, pra- and kind of pragmatic uh, application of what this is. I usually do a lot more, as you know me, biblical or like history nerd sermons, and this time it's going to be very practical. So... Um, Obviously, I believe in this mission of our church. I'm proud of it. I think that's why I'm here in church at all. Um, but I will also be the first to acknowledge that sometimes it feels a little stressful. You know, coming to church, it's your day off, and some pastor up here is telling you about all the injustices that are happening in this world. And now you're like, as Christians, we have to do something about them. And now you're feeling like guilty, and you're just trying to do laundry. You're just trying to go to Trader Joe's and Target. And like, you, weren't, you didn't schedule this, like changing the world on Sunday in your like itinerary. Um, and I've been noticing this kind of growing moral anxiety kind of within our church when I talk to people in a small group, but also definitely outside of our church, where it feels like everything is terrible and we need to do something. And I think that anxiety particularly gets concentrated in our kind of scrutiny over how can we make ethical consumer decisions, especially when it comes to the environment. So it looks something like this. I'm going out to Shake Shack. I order, you know, the mushroom burger meat thing. Um... And afterwards, I take my tray, and I see three bins, trash, recycling, compost. And immediately, I feel stressed, because, you know, this, I'm holding maybe this, like, paper plate thing, but it has food on it, so if it's soiled, I think I read an article saying you can't really recycle it. Um, and then I'm holding this plastic fork, and if you read certain symbols on it, you can tell if you can recycle it, but it's all black, and uh, there are people lining up behind me, so I just feel really stressed, and I throw it all in trash, right? <laughs> And I emerge, I'm feeling already bad, and I open Facebook, and then someone posts an article about how one-third of our carbon emissions comes from the meat industry. I'm like, it doesn't matter. I ate a burger. That was, like, way worse than everything I did. And then, you know, I check Instagram, and some uh, really nice ethical person posts about how she has re- brings her reusable mug and metal utensils in her backpack every time she goes out to eat. And part of me is like, well, that's kind of inspiring. And part of me is like, I hate you. You know, like, do you, do, do you think you're better than the rest of us? Like, I see what you're doing here. Um, and then I open my phone and I check, you know, WhatsApp, which my, the group chat my family communicates on. And I see my parents, and this actually did happen, forwarded uh, photos from my relatives in Australia of the fire that's happening currently, which is burning more acres of land combined than the Amazon and California. Um, and temperatures in Australia have reached really peaks since 1950. They had the hottest summer on record since last year. And you know, I'm starting to feel kind of worried about my cousins in Melbourne, and I'm thinking, oh my God, like, I didn't recycle, and that's why there's a fire, and my cousins are going to die, and I'm going to be responsible for it. And, you know, this is obviously exaggerating a little bit here, but how many of you feel a little bit of this kind of anxiety right now? Okay, all right. All right, that's why I thought we should give this sermon. I was like, I think we need it. Um, I mean, because it does kind of feel like we're at the end of the world. Like, you know, the intergovernmental um, report on climate change just put out a, a report that said we have about 10 years, starting from this year, to make massive changes in order to avoid the worst effects of climate change, just the worst effects, which include, you know, entire cities drowning underwater. 
So we have 10 years. It's kind of this ticking clock. And I think this urge we feel to do something about it is great. I mean, I think as the body of Christ, we are called to not just pray, but to actually be present in places where we pray for justice and intervention. We have to be the hands and feet in Christ um, and the vessel through which God's love and justice is ushered into this world. So I'm glad we're trying to do something, but I think sometimes it feels like we're in this kind of 24-7 guilt-ridden moral anxiety where we're scrutinizing every decision we make, trying to make sure we're doing the right thing. And for those of us who grew up in kind of a conservative purity culture, this feeling might feel familiar. You know, you're scrutinizing your thoughts, making sure that you're not having sexual thoughts, you're not doing like things you're not supposed to do with your body because your body is seen as dirty and corrupt. Now, we've talked a lot about purity culture and ways in which we're trying to unpack that, but I think some of us have transferred some of that obsession over to like recycling, uh, over to like whether I'm eating meat or biking or not, because now, you know, maybe our bodies are fine, but now we're trying to clean the planet. Or maybe, you know, it's the systems that are dirty and corrupt, and we're trying to make sure we stay pure and clean and like not complicit in what's going on. So, of course, the, the sexual purity culture and this kind of progressive purity culture um, are very different. You know, the former is about making sure you don't go to hell, and the latter is making sure we all don't burn in hell. Um, but I think what they have in common is a kind of hyper-focus on the individual. You know, in the past, maybe being good was about making sure I'm you know, not masturbating, I'm not watching porn or something like that. And now being good is about making sure I'm recycling, I'm you know, acting sustainably. And this focus on the I, I think, is a sort of individualistic kind of product of our kind of American culture, or you can argue neoliberal culture. And to be honest, it's also a sort of a product of white culture because many other systems and cultures around this world and in America tend to have a much greater emphasis on the collective and the communal. We use we more than I and stuff like that. And I think it's this individualistic focus that causes us to sort of feel stress and ashamed because when the spotlight is just on you, you feel this disproportionate burden to like, save the world because the fate of the world hangs on your actions. And you can see how quickly this sort of leads into a savior complex where you know, if you don't recycle, you know, your cousins are going to die. And my mom actually said to me once when she heard about the social justice stuff we're doing at this church, she said, sir, you know, make sure that as you do this, you make sure that there is space for God. You know, we can't do good all by ourselves. We have to rely on God in the works we do. And I kind of agree. I think an individualistic focus is not sustainable. But what's maybe even worse than all the problems I just mentioned is the fact that individual personal actions are sort of a drop in the ocean. They're just really not that effective. Can you guess um, how many companies are responsible for more than 70% of carbon emissions? Or right, some of you are a bit more pessimistic than the actual number, it's 100. Uh, some of you are like two. I said, okay, which two? I'm curious. Um, <laughs> Um, and so, you know, these are companies that if you look them up the list, it's like, you know, they supply fossil fuel to our kind of energy system for electricity, for gas, and they also supply the fossil fuels to make plastic. And so this, perfect, perfect, this perfectionism that is hyper-focused on individual consumer decisions not only makes us feel kind of bad, but it's also ineffective. But it's not an accident, I think, that this is our mindset. I think one of the reasons is that corporations have actually spent billions of dollars in PR efforts to convince us that helping the environment is about personal actions and not about systemic policy change. So the example, I'm going to take a look at a few websites. This is Keep America Beautiful. It's a website about cleaning beaches and neighborhoods of litter. You know, important stuff. There's another website called A Bag's Life, which promotes recycling of plastic bags in schools. Also, you know, counter-argue that, very important. 
And it, you know, we've seen pictures of whales and birds dying full of plastic inside of them, and we've read how you know microplastics are in the air we breathe and the water we drink. And the other thing that I sort of learned in the course of doing the sermon is that plastic is also the second largest contributor to carbon emissions because 99% of what is in plastic is derived from fossil fuels. So what these websites you poke around don't make very clear is that the board of directors of Keep America Beautiful are executives at beverage and plastic companies like Coke and Pepsi. And the Bags Life is the education arm of the American Progressive Bag Alliance, uh, a lobbying group which includes companies like Shell, Chevron, Exxon, and Dow DuPont, all of which profit hugely from plastics. So these plastic, you know, fossil fuel companies tell us we should recycle. Okay, let's take a look at them. The truth is we don't really have a good solution to recycling plastic. So the process of recycling, I had to watch this little video on it, you kind of melt it down into this kind of brown goo and becomes these pellets that then get reused into plastic products. And in the process, you release a lot, a lot of toxic chemicals. And that's why China, which used to buy all the plastic we put in our recycling bins and like make them into plastic products, they did it for decades until they realized their workers were getting really sick, their waterways were getting contaminated, and they said, we're not buying plastic anymore. That should cause this huge ripple effect among the plastics industry, recycling industry worldwide. And as a result, the US and UK and other kind of bougie countries were kind of stuck with all this plastic that we put in our recycling bins, but have nowhere to go. So can you guess what percentage of the plastic we put in our recycling bins actually gets recycled into new products? I ask questions so I can take a water break. Um, 5%, 80% goes to our landfills. About 13% gets incinerated, just like burnt and vaporized into the air. And most of our country's plastic incinerators are located in poor communities of color. And so that particular intersection of environmentalism, race, and class, um, if you want to Google it more, you can Google environmental racism. It's um, super important. So to bring it back, we have, like I said, 10 years. And, and I was just talking to Frank uh, earlier ago, and he was talking to me about how his daughter was saying, Dad, I don't want to grow up and learn that the animals you grew up with are now extinct. Like, I don't want to learn that the koala, you know, it no longer exists by the time I turn, like, 20 or something like that. Uh, a friend of mine, Will, who teaches uh, kids, I think, in sixth or seventh grade, was saying that this is the number one issue his students care about. They can't even think about retirement or savings or social security because what world will they in inherit by the time they get to that age? And so I think we need to take drastic action, you know, just recycling plastic or, you know, convincing your friends to just reuse their, you know, bring metal utensils, the reusable mugs are good, but they're just not going to get the drastic action we need to do in the next 10 years. So historically, in this country, when we've needed to accelerate change on an urgent timeline, we turn to the courts or legislators. So that's what, a big strategy of the civil rights movement here in America. So that's why some groups have lobbied um, to pass laws in cities, adding just a five cent fee for every plastic bag used in grocery stores. And it's proven to reduce plastic bag usage by about 85 to 90%. Especially for the immigrant moms, like five cents, no way, you gotta bring my, my paper bags, um, definitely not paying five cents. So it, it, it's, it's a psychological trick that actually creates a lot of action. And, but the thing is that groups like American Progressive Bag Alliance actively fight behind the scenes to make it illegal for local governments to restrict or ban single plastic bags or single-use plastic products. 
companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi have been fighting something called bottle bills, which are bills that require people to be compensated for about five to 10 cents for every can or bottle they recycle. That's why you see all kind of the Asian moms or Asian women with like huge bags kind of on them in Chinatown, all the people going through your trash and picking it up, they do this to make a living. And we, even though these bills have been proven to you know, drastically reduce um, or increase recycling rates, they only exist in 10 states. And that's because of the lobbying of these beverage companies. And so it almost seems to me that these recycling initiatives put out by these companies are ways to get consumers to feel better about using plastic because they know it's going to get recycled. And so they'll purchase more plastic. Um, and, and in fact, despite all of our recycling efforts, plastic production is expected to increase by 40% over the next 10 years. We have 10 years and we should be decreasing it by 40%. Instead, we're increasing by 40%. And part of the reason why is that the market economic incentives are not there for recycling plastic. It's, it's more expensive than just making what they call virgin plastic. So you see the trend here. Corporations are publicly promoting an individual responsibility to recycle while privately fighting policies and kind of more systemic change that will decrease the need to recycle in the first place. Yeah, it's rough to play with other people. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, no one likes that. But, uh, so you might say, Sarah, these are powerful companies. What can I do as an individual? And I think the instinct to give up and just be like, there's nothing I can do is understandable. But I do think it hinges on a kind of false binary between personal actions you can control and kind of impersonal systems that are impossible to control. And in reality, it's not a binary, but a spectrum. And I think this is true of many things, by the way. But in the middle of the spectrum is something of what I like to call collective action, between personal action and impersonal systems. So on one end of the action, you have personal action, which I actually do think is important. When I recycle, I try to think about it kind of as a spiritual practice that helps me become more mindful about what I eat, what I consume, and what I put out. And so a friend of mine actually told me recently that when she orders things online, she contacts the supplier to tell, the, to tell them she does not want plastic packaging because it's a book, she doesn't mind if it gets chipped. When she told me that, I was like, oh, no way you can do that. I mean, I've always took plastic packaging to be for granted. Um, just like this is just a fact of life. And so her telling me that helps me become more aware, more mindful. And it's easier not to feel stressed about it if, if you're not treating your recycling as like, you know, this makes or breaks like climate change, but you treat it as a practice that has more of an impact on you, really, than it has on like the larger big system. So if you want to move beyond changing yourself and towards taking kind of collective action to have an impact on the world, we have to move from individual to collective action. So let's say my friend put together a petition and said, Amazon, we want you to add a checkbox to say, I, want, I don't want plastic packaging. That will be one way of moving from individual to collective. And a college classmate of that of mine actually did something similar. Her name is Anna Sachs. And um, after college, she went to a sort of Jewish farming program called Adamam, where she's on a farm. She's learning about sustainability and kind of uh, sustainable waste management practices. She comes back to New York, where she's grown up all her life. And, and, first, and she's really seeing, almost for the first time, all these brand new items that are being thrown onto the sidewalks. And for the first time, I think it's kind of being shocked. And she starts going through a kind of big, um, large garbage bags and kind of looking at items that are been going through there. She starts looking through dumpsters. And she noticed that the biggest culprits are large retail companies like CVS or Duane Reed. 
they're throwing dumps, entire dumpsters worth full of slightly damaged, uh, maybe about to expire items that are really more about the best buy date and not really the expired buy date, if that you know the distinction. And of tampons, sunscreen, oatmeal, you name it, all in the dumpsters just to kind of clean inventory and get a new inventory in. So she started moving from individual to collective action. She started a change.org petition, asking CVS to donate and dump their um, inventory. And she has about 400,000 signatures on it. She's trying to reach 500,000 so you can go and sign it. And CVS management has, are in conversation with her, but they still, for the most part, are not really changing um, their practices. So if Anna wanted to take it a step further, she could partner perhaps with a legislator and talk about ways in which to regulate large retail companies beyond just CVS. And actually working to pass a bill is a very common way to take collective change because trying to convince a legislator is a, tends to be a lot easier than convincing a company because um, legislators are supposed to represent you and companies unless you're a major shareholder, it's a little bit harder to get action. And that's what a lawyer named Helen um, Slotia did in 2009. She lives in um, Ithaca and around that period of time, um, oil companies started realizing that upstate New York actually sits on the largest deposit of natural gas underground. So these companies are kind of swarming in, getting kind of from poor farmers or small towns to sign leases uh, away, signing away the oil and gas rights to these companies. And the problem is the process of extracting gas from the land is a process called fracking. And it's a process that um, carries a pretty high risk because it pollutes the water under the land and the general land itself. And upstate New York is home to many of the lakes by which we get our drinking water. So Helen and a bunch of local organizers started meeting um, with local government kind of councils, city councils type thing. You know, 10, 15 people at a time just giving the evidence and showing why fracking is not worth the risk that it would entail to like our livelihoods. And one by one, towns started passing legislation saying no fracking in our kind of perimeter. We have about 170 towns have passed no fracking legislation. Um, there are about 900 total to go. Um, so obviously it's still an ongoing struggle, but it's quite amazing to think about how local groups of organizers are able to take on far wealthier and far more powerful companies. Um, and it's, I think that's something, and even now I think our Governor Cuomo, who used to be like flirty with fracking, shall we say, um, has now come down and said like fracking would not happen in this state due to seeing the support that's happening on the ground. So moving from individual to collective action, action can take many forms. You can be sort of loud on social media like my friend Anna, or you can be sort of meeting quietly behind the scenes with key legislators um, like Helen did. Either way, I think the point is we need to take some sort of action to fight climate change, and that requires collective action and really applying pressure. And I say all this partly because I think sometimes we give the sermons about how you have to do good and like do justice, and you go out and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. Like, should I just like focus on myself? And I, I want to give you all kind of models for how to take change beyond just your individual personal actions. Like, these are examples to kind of inspire thought. The good news is that you don't have to kind of start initiatives by yourself as these people have done. You can actually just join movements that are already happening. So. Um, if you actually currently work as an organizer or volunteer in your free time organizing voters and stuff like that, come talk to me after service. We're trying to put together kind of a group of organizers here in our church. But I'm gonna give you, a, for the rest of you, can give you a quick assignment. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. How many of you actually already follow us? Okay, so about half. The other half of you need to get your act together. Uh, <laughs> you know, these announcements we do, these events, but you're gonna forget about them. The social media is how you'll remember about them. Uh, and particularly, we just did a post a few days ago um, on Charisse's uh, 30th birthday, who was the woman singing right here. 
um, who's from Australia and posted, a, a, she's raising money for a birthday to donate to a climate science foundation and to help the rural firefighters in Australia right now. So that's something very easy you can do. And to starting tomorrow, I'll post sort of three political initiatives you can get involved in on our social media accounts. Um, it's going to range from like sunrise movement stuff, which really mobilizes youth to pressure politicians to not take fossil fuel, pledge, uh, fossil fuel money, to uh, current action that is looking um, to figure out how can we move up utilities from private companies to public ownership. And so you can look at it, and if you agree with me, you can take some action on them. But you know, but perhaps you'll disagree. Maybe you'll look at that and be like, I actually disagree. I, I don't like this action. I don't think it's good. And that's fine. I'm not going to pretend that if you read the Bible in just the right way, you'll see that Jesus is supporting the Green New Deal. I mean, the, you know, the, the solutions I'm proposing are just my personal take. I'm not going to kind of replicate bad power dynamics and say this is the word of God. Um, but I do hope you agree with me that climate change is bad and we need to move from individual to collective action. And I'll go further and say that when you look at the life of Jesus... He actually spent most of his time with 12 people, training, equipping, and discipling and empower them to continue the movement after he would depart. He told his disciples, in fact, in John 14, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. His life, although you know he could do tons of miracles, he actually wasn't trying to be kind of the superhero person traveling for like major cities across the world healing thousands of people at a time. In fact, when he performed a lot of his miracles, he told people to keep quiet about it. And I think, you know, our creeds say that Jesus is the son of God. He is fully divine and fully human. But even someone like Jesus recognized that the movement had to be larger than him. That after his life on earth, the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would ultimately be the vessel for his message to the world. So you're it. We are God's plan, in part. Um, and well, not just the church, luckily, there are other humans too. But um, since I'm talking in church, this is who I'm dressing. So to go back to the, the verse about being perfect um, that I mentioned in Matthew 5. So the key word there, if you look at that verse, is the word therefore, which signals that it is the conclusion of, a, of an argument Jesus has been building. And the paragraph that precedes that particular line comes at the um, end of a paragraph where Jesus is telling um, the people on the, through the Sermon on the Mount that they cannot just love their neighbors and do good to, think, to people who are good to them, who are, who are like them, who they're friends with or family with. They have to do those things to their enemies as well. To people outside of the tribe, people outside of the people, people that might dislike. And so in some ways, he's getting people to move from tribal love to universal love. He's getting people to move up across the collective scale to you know, essentially take on a more collective way of being and acting. And I think many of us in this church, joining church in general, in order to feel connected to a collective, to something larger and more transcendent than our individual lives. I think there's something like really electrifying when we're all singing and our voice is sort of lifted up in one direction. There's something just really comforting in knowing you can come here and you can come to the side and someone will pray for you by that prayer station over there and your burden is not yours that you have to carry. There's something super powerful in knowing that we're not in this alone, we're in this together and God is with us and is working through us to affect the kind of change we need. I'm curious how many of you have kind of felt this kind of spiritual kind of high or transcendence, this sense of being part of something collective in church before during one of the services? Okay, I think most of us, I think that's partly why Angela does such a great job kind of creating those environments for us. Now, how many of you have felt that feeling in a political rally or political event? Okay, fewer hands, but you know what I'm kind of talking about. There's a sense in which I am sort of 
buoyed by this larger energy of this crowd. And I think you can call something like that the Holy Spirit. So I want us to be able to inject this collective spirit to our ethics, to our politics, or how we think about change, and not just to like how we feel in a Sunday service. To be able to sh- not stop shouldering our burdens individually and try to be morally perfect and pure by ourselves, but to share our burdens collectively and work together for the change we need. And this is, I think, good news. I hope that this is a gospel that can energize you and excite you instead of leaving you stressed and guilty and trying to squeeze it between your errands. So, follow us on social media. There will be action steps there. I'm going to close this in prayer. Dear God, you can do things exceedingly and abundantly more than we imagine. And you promise us in the scriptures that we can do even greater things than the things you have done here on this earth. Pray that you give us that vision of that hope and that possibility. And pray that we will learn to share our burdens with each other with the church, with our neighbors, with our friends, to figure out how can we bring about heaven onto earth collectively. In your name I pray. Amen.